make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing, it seemed, in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Hi, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm really excited to be here with you all today with my co-host with Sylvia Franklin and our special guest, Zimran Jacob, today. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. We're, We're glad you're here. I am excited to tell you all about Zimran. So stand by and I'm going to tell you more about him. So he is an Indian American drama television writer, originally from the Bay Area, San Francisco. After graduating cum laude from Chapman University with a BA in screenwriting, he moved out to Los Angeles where he began to work as a dating coach for high net worth individuals. One of his dating clients was a film executive who introduced Zimmerman to a job in the finance department at Gaumont Television, which released Narcos, Hannibal, Hemlock Grove, and F is for Family during his tenure at the company. And his job there led him to marvel in the writer's room on the Netflix show, The Punisher, where he was able to contribute to the story in his role on the support staff as a showrunner's assistant. And during his time at Marvel, he pitched two stories which became produced episodes. He sold his feature swag to 19F Productions where Kevin Pollock is attached to direct. And he was a PGA Diversity Workshop Fellow in 2019 and a semi-finalist in both 2018-2019 Austin Film Festival, AFF. Most recently, he brought his enthusiasm to his job as showrunner's assistant for October Faction on Netflix. And he writes dark Shakespearean dramas featuring Machiavellian characters, tribal power struggles, and is addicted to to crime stories. Um, He brings a breadth of knowledge and unique background to all his projects, as he created a software company that was stolen by two friends, not Facebook, and he's worked as a financial advisor and an NBA journalist. And on top of that, he was a nationally ranked chess player. You can do that really cool thing where you play a few games at the same time. Welcome, Zimran Jacob. Hi, thanks so much for that introduction. Um, It's always fun to have your own bio uh, to hear it back, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I've done a few things and I actually just closed another deal. Um, so I might be EPing on my own pilot soon. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I can maybe, maybe I can talk a little bit more about that in, uh, in a few weeks, but I'm very excited about that. Oh, fantastic. We're excited to hear about your journey. And Sylvia brings a, a breadth of experience from the TV world as well. So I'm really excited that she's here to um, dig deeper with you on your experience working in the writer's room and such like that. 
Yeah, amazing. Nice to meet you, Sylvia. Likewise. Um, my background is a TV drama writer as well. I'm, let's see, I've worked on a lot of shows, <laughs> mostly uh, character-driven, uh, some procedural stuff, mostly network. Um, currently, I'm the rookie right now uh, in a, uh, as a script coordinator, not as a writer, although uh, last season, during the whole height of the pandemic, they approached uh, myself and another member of the sports staff to co-write an episode. Uh, we were wonderful and willing to do it. And uh, unfortunately, the timing of it uh, made the episode go away. So hopefully uh, we will get to revisit that this season. Um, I do have a sh an episode coming out next month, not next month, uh, in January uh, for a show called Women of the Movement. I co-wrote an episode for that, uh, for a limited uh, series on ABC. Um, and then uh, I too am doing developing uh, uh, on a few things, and uh, yeah, it's uh, something good right now. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, congrats. Thanks, you too. Well, tell us about your journey, Zimran, because dating coach to the stars, <laughs> going from Chapman to that, and now back into your native landscape and world of of writing. I, I would love to hear more about your arc there and your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you know, I when I was in uh, high school, obviously, like everybody in my high school, I was in the Bay Area. So it was uh, very academic driven and everybody was going into math and sciences and becoming what, what town in the Bay because I lived there for about 10 years in Fremont, California. Oh, yeah, in Fremont. Yeah, so sure. I went to Mission San Jose, which is like, is known to be the top ranked public school in in the state. And then also, it gets nationally ranked and it was featured in that film, um, Waiting for Superman, about the education system. But it was ranked as the, one of the best schools uh, in the nation, which I don't know how you rank that, but very competitive. And, you know, I, I remember I had like a 3.6, 3.7 GPA, and I was not even in the top 100 of the, of the class. It was just like extremely competitive. And we were all taking AP and honors classes. So very motivated students. Um, and yeah, I was kind of a, a, a weird guy that like loved film and loved television. And uh, my English teachers were amazing. So they kind of opened up the world to me, like the world of literature to me in a way that I had never thought about it. And they talked about themes and symbolism and, uh, you know, character development and foreshadowing and all these elements that the hero's journey that would kind of serve me uh, when I did start to become interested as in being a writer. But, you know, I was just in SAT in my SAT prep classes. Um, yeah, like I'm a huge nerd. What can I say? And we <laughs> my teachers were like, you love film so much. So why don't you just make films? And not knowing the financial ramifications of that, I was like, okay, cool, I'll just do that. Yeah, it's, it sounds so simple, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I um, started, you know, I was watching movies like pretty frequently on my uh, video iPod, that's how old I am, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, in class every day, like watching about three movies a day. And um, got, I got into USC, into the summer seminars there when I was 17, so I did a summer seminar uh at usc um went to chapman on uh like a, a full screenwriting scholarship and then did a, also a guest semester at nyu during the summer um yeah i mean i obviously val value education and then wanted to 
get the best education. And it was kind of like at film school is like magical. You know, you just watch movies and it's like, what do you like about the movie? And then you write an essay and you get an A. Like it's <laughs> it's like way easier than like calculus. So I was like, this is this is amazing. Um and yeah, the people at Chapman were great. The teachers were amazing. Like, and um I randomly met as as I was graduating, I met somebody at a sushi restaurant who knew a producer who uh was he was doing like independent features and independent television. So I needed a job and he said, Oh, you know, I can help you if you're a writer and this and this and that. And you know, I worked with him for actually three years. Uh he kind of gave me my start. And um, you know, but working in production wasn't helping me as a writer. So I had to kind of make make my next move and um went went to UCLA went back to UCLA uh and studied film and television but also finance because I was like okay like <laughs> I was kind of getting burned out I was like I've been in this business for 3 years and nothing's really happened for me so uh maybe I should kind of try to find a day job and uh and pay the bills while I'm chasing my writing dreams and so I studied finance. I got a job at a financial advising firm. Uh, and while that was happening, I was playing a lot of basketball. And, you know, one of my clients was um, had this basketball game that I would go to. And I, you know, went there for about a year, played there for about a year. And within a year, we um, I met this guy that was uh, an EP on Hannibal, or he was the CFO at Goan. And uh, we got along very quickly. I, you know, love him to death uh, to this day. Roman Vieras, uh, amazing executive. Um, and, uh, you know, he mentored me and he gave me, basically, I told him I wanted to be a writer and he just gave me a job. He's like, hey, I have this thing opening up. Like, would you like to work at my company? Uh, I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, in the finance department. So that was a couple of weeks before Narcos premiered, the first episode of Narcos or the wow. first season of Narcos premiered. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, we used to be known for the, the show Hannibal at Gaumont and then Narcos came out and, uh, and that was that. So, um, so he was EP at Gaumont and you met him through a basketball game. He, he was a CFO at Gaumont. He was a CFO at Gaumont. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, I, I did meet him through a basketball game. Um, but I, I love that. I mean, I worked for Gary Shandling and we had the Sunday basketball games at his house and, you know, it's, it is a wonderful way to meet people is to have fun together doing something that you really love. Yeah, absolutely. It, exactly. I didn't think of it as networking. I thought of it just as like, I, I like this guy a lot. And yeah, we became friends. Uh, we became very friendly. And then he invited me to his private basketball games. Uh, and yeah, like I was a there huge. You go. So you got to learn to play basketball. <laughs> or tennis. <laughs> tennis is a big one. Golf is a big one. <laughs> totally. Uh, I mean, and I think the, 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 the landscape for executives is also going to be changing and there's going to be new places to meet people. There's going to be, you know, it's always going to be evolving. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, that's one silver lining is the fact that the pandemic has really opened up ways for people to meet and to uh, conduct business. And I think technology has really sort of aided in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, Zoom has changed a lot and, you know, you can reach out to somebody on Twitter or email or whatever it is, and it's a little bit more acceptable. Um, I mean, I, I think it was always acceptable, but now it's becoming everybody's doing it. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, yeah, anyway, so to answer your question, so, yeah, I worked at Gomont for about uh, a year. And uh, it was, I mean, amazing people, you know, top top to bottom, amazing culture, every every single person like is it was it was amazing at that company and uh you know but i i really wanted to be in the writer's room so one of the executives really uh, liked me at gomont and so she put me in I, I basically just was taking just meeting with everybody that i could to try to get ahead and i said i just want to be a writer so badly like i was i was you know, I was trying to steal time at work to write my scripts. Like some people, people DM me all the time and they're like, oh, like if I work a full-time job, like what do I do? It's like, I worked a full-time job and I still found like hours within the day. And like sometimes after work, maybe three hours after work uh, to write my scripts and like watch TV and, and do, do my writerly work. Um, and, you know, but I, yeah, I was meeting with an executive there who was the head of production and now she's head of production at Apple. So she is, I mean, yeah, an absolute treasure, but, um, uh, she just said, you know, I want to, uh, she was like, if you want to be taken seriously as a writer, you have to be in the writer's room and, you know, reps are going to be more interested in you if you're in the writer's room. I said, okay, fine. So, you know, I just stayed on her radar and I was like, I would love to be in a writer's room, whatever, whatever the possibility is there. And, uh, you know, Punisher was uh, something that one of our executive producers from Hannibal and Narcos, like well, he's a consulting producer on Narcos, but um, was going to show run. So we had the connection. He had a show and I made, made the jump. Uh, it was kind of like, it was very like exciting. Uh, and yeah, worked on Narcos for about a year. I sorry, worked on the Punisher for a year in the writer's room. And yeah, it was like a magical experience. I learned so much. Also good people. Um, but the show ended and I was looking for, or the season ended and I was looking for, I couldn't wait around for the second season. So, um, I was looking for something else to do, but I started uh, writing and I started winning a lot of competitions and one of the competitions that I won introduced me to the next showrunner that I worked for, uh, who, uh, ran the show October faction. And, uh, yeah, Damien Kindler, amazing showrunner, like amazing person and, um, worked there for about half, half a year. Um, and yeah, like it was another Netflix show, um, really good people. I, I think I stay in touch with everybody from that show for the most part. Um, and yeah, I just, it just learned so much being in the writer's room that you just can't, you can't really replicate it. You're working with seasoned professionals that have honed their craft over decades that can teach you more in one conversation than, than you could ever learn from, uh, you know, a, a screenwriting book. Uh, obviously those books are fundamental to your, you know, to, to what you're going to be doing, but, uh, yeah, you just learn so much in the writer's room. And then, yeah, after that, uh, I got into the PGA diversity program with my, uh, 
a, like a Hindu mythological project. It's a historical project. It's kind of like the Indian Game of Thrones. I always pitch it like. Wait, Ramayana? What is it? Uh, no, it's not Ramayana. But if, if uh, uh, James Cameron, if you're listening, let me direct Ramayana for you. <laughs> Please, uh, right? I, I can't for... believe we haven't had that in a really big way. He's I know that it's produced... At any given time, every day of the year, there's some production of the Ramayana going on worldwide. <laughs> well, he, he's uh, he's been looking for an Indian director to uh, to do Ramayana, and um, yeah, I mean, I love it's it's my favorite, <clears throat> one of my favorite mythologies. Um, but no, I, I I wrote my own thing that was kind of a hybrid of like uh, of Indian mythology, but it's inspired a lot by Indian mythology. But it's Indian mythology tra transposed into the life of this warrior queen that I found, and I'm I like my my pitch on it is Princess Jasmine becomes Genghis Khan, so it's like it shows like in in that era basically it was you couldn't couldn't really be a queen without incurring a lot of whenever when a king would die they would have to jump into the fire the queen would have to jump into the fire and right. commit sati like so basically the story of every queen in India in that time is like the story of somebody who didn't. Kill, kill herself. And I know the story of Merunisa and some of that era, but that's that's it. It's such a vast and ancient um, culture, yeah. so many thousands of years. I mean, I'm a huge fan of American history and Indian history, but American history is like 300 years, and, <laughs> right? And Indian history is like about 3,000 years. Many, many thousands <laughs> of years. Yeah. Like, are, you for, are you first generation American? Uh, second. Well, my parents were okay. Indian and moved from India, so I, I guess I'm considered by a lot of people's second, second generation. Um, I just wanted to add uh, something to your comment about working in the writer's room. That's one path. Yeah. Um, if you are, uh, from the shows that I've worked on, there are so many people who wanna to get to the writer's room, but there are only so many spots available, especially whether you're the writer or you're the writer's assistant or the script coordinator on comedies and things like that. But uh, I think if you, you, you just have to put in the time. Uh, if you're on set, if you're in one of the departments and you're learning about just the craft of putting together a television show, every department plays a role. It's like a puzzle and everyone has a role to play. And so if you are, you know, an assistant or a coordinator in the art department or in costumes and you're trying to write, you just have to write and then make connections to the people who are actually in charge of creating this this thing this idea that is hopefully going to be produced and then you know hopefully you have the opportunity to to present your information your scripts to this person or people and hopefully you know from there it'll go off it'll take off but i i just want to make sure that people don't think that being a writer's assistant and you know getting a writer's job is the only way to sort of transition into it no no i yeah i should add a lot of caveats to that statement because it was it was her opinion as an executive but i i think um and and it has been true for me but a lot of writers come from other careers as well so if your career you know i have a friend who is a medic and she he, i mean he's yeah. going to work constantly because it's like oh we need to write this medical scene and he's he's useful for that um so you know a lot of people come from other careers some i mean some writers have been actors or Whatever. Playwrights, yeah. Construction. Lawyers, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, play, playwrights or like journalists or whatever it might be. But so, yeah, it's, it, being in the writer's room is not the only way to be taken seriously, but it is one of the major ways to be taken very seriously very quickly. Yeah. I, you know, when I think about like competitions, for example, like I've placed in a lot of big competitions and won some uh, competitions as well. 
And those, those do help you. They do get you taken seriously, but at certain, certain levels, like, you, you know, I, when I was a semifinalist at Austin, um, it was, it was still kind of, Oh, like a, a, you know, a, a meeting, a meeting here, a meeting there. <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, the floodgates just kind of started opening. Whereas when I was in the writer's room, it was managers emailing me directly. Hey, so you're on the show. Let me talk to you. Let me get in touch with you. Let's ha- let me take you out for dinner. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a million ways. And then obviously if you have an agent that will do a lot of work for you, then that's a great way to, to get more work. Or if you have a manager that'll do a lot of work for you, then that you can lean on them a little bit. And Hey, congratulations. I, I know and saw on Twitter that you're newly repped by Gotham. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I appreciate the uh, UCLA shout out. I've been working with them for about a year, actually. So oh. <laughs> they just they 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 said, "Hey, do you have any anything that you want to share in our no- newsletter?" And I was like, "Well, I mean, this happened in January. Do you want to share this?" They were like, "Yeah, sure, we'll share it." Oh, it's great. Yeah. Th- so, but thank you so much. Yeah, it's been I've been working with them for about a year now. Yeah, to, f- to follow up on Sylvia's question, um, the, my experience and understanding of TV comes through Gary Shandling, because I have not worked in TV and have no TV aspirations. And in getting to know Sylvia and other TV writers, one thing that Sylvia has really shared a lot with our audience is that being in the writer's room is not an entry-level job. And yet I think a lot of film school grads, you know, something like 50,000 a year in the United States get out and just kind of pin their hopes on this job that they really want. So do you have any advice for, you know, up-and-comers to get those jobs and that kind of staffing that they're hoping for? Sure, yeah. I mean, and another caveat, not only is it not an entry-level job, it's not a ticket. It's not the same type of ticket that it used to be, you know, like back in the day of 22 episode orders, it's like, Oh, there's 22 episodes. How are we going to get all these episodes written? It's like, Oh, we have to, we should give this to this assistant and then, you know, promote this assistant. But a lot of people are getting stuck in those positions now for like decades, you know? So, um, and I don't know exactly what the fix for that is obviously just promote us, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not an entry level job and they're going to expect so much from you. And, you know, it's good if you have an agency, if you have agency experience that can probably help you. Um, and, um, yeah, as for how to get those jobs, you know, for me, it's always been very random, but I mean, just know a lot of people and (laughs) know people that are connected to those kinds of worlds. Um, and yeah, like obviously writers, staff writers, story editors, you know, EPs, anybody who's in the writer's room can potentially help you find something. Um, or, you know, sometimes I've seen situations where a writer comes in and says, hire this person, like you have to. And then the recommendation is so strong uh, that there's no, there's really no choice. Or sometimes somebody comes to me, like I, I hired two people on on the last show or I, was in charge of hiring two people on October faction. And, um, yeah, I, you know, for me, like I went through a long process with one of the roles and then, uh, two people came to me with great recommendations. So that was the bottom line for me. I'm like, I don't want to go against this great recommendation. Like, why would I, and I like this person. So why would I bother, (laughs) 
you know, the, the recommendation I think is so powerful and so strong. I think I've maybe gotten two jobs where I didn't get recommended. And that was because I knew the person who was hiring directly. So with, you know, in one case, I, I um, was playing basketball with the guy and that's like a low uh, investment kind of, uh, there, there's, there's no low pressure environment. Like he, he, he's not, I'm not emailing him, hey, can I get a job from you? Uh, and then the other guy, the other showrunner, um, I met through a competition that I won and he was one of the mentors. And he came in and he gave notes on on an amazing script that one of my friends had written, who uh, just I think she just she just did a freelance on Cowboy Bebop. Uh, so I'm very happy for her. But she came. He gave notes on her script. And I, you know, I just found him in the in the parking lot and I just said, thank you. Afterwards, I was like, hey, thanks so much. I know, you know, you're a busy, busy showrunner and it just may, means so much for us to learn from you. And then the next day he called me and was like, hey, you're the guy who said thank you. I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, do you want to work on my show? I'm like, sure. <laughs> so that's that's how it worked. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, as far as like, if there was a systematic approach, I would try to just network with all the TV writers that you knew and maybe friend have friends at an agency or get agency experience if you're coming out of film school. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a million things like I would say, you know, try to get an agency job, make some friends in TV writing. And um, yeah, I mean, I would actually piggyback on that. I think that's a great way to learn the industry. I think a lot of people get uh, caught up on the, in the craft, which you obviously should do learn how to write and write for television and write under deadlines. And uh, television writing is a team sport. You're not, you know, sitting in your garret someplace writing by yourself, um, you you will definitely have to be a contributor to whatever it is that your name is, has a byline on, but you are writing that with, you know, eight to 10 other people. Uh, but starting out at a literary agency is a great idea or a management company, um, because then you get to know the other side of it. You know, you get to know what the buyers are looking for. You get to know what studio execs are looking for. You get to know what people are thinking in terms of what's happening in the marketplace. And I think that's a great way to learn and to understand the timeline of television, the business of television, and then the craft of TV writing. Um, because when I worked in a, a literary agency, um, it was a smaller boutique one. Rothman, I think it's Rothman Brecker now. And, you know, I got hired right at the beginning of pilot season, which was in January. And that was, that was just thrown in. I was thrust in. It was just like learning how your agent works, you know, taking calls, being in on the calls and hearing what is being said about how to sell and pitch a writer, you know, the specs that a writer has to have. Um, and these days they don't do specs. These days they do original pilots. Um, some places like uh, fellowships and some of the writing uh, initiatives, some of them ask for specs of shows that are already on the air. But for the most part, people are really interested in hearing your original voice as a writer. And they want to see what you can do and what you, you know, what you're, what you gravitate toward in terms of your aesthetic, your story aesthetic. So I think that when you're starting out, um, it's great to look up for the people that you admire and, and want to get uh, get a chance to know, but you also have to look to your side. You know, who are the people who are also coming up with you? Build your network. You have to. That's how you find work. And that's typically the, the people you found out, uh, find out about jobs and opportunities and things like that. Look sideways as well. 
Yeah, I, I think that's important. I mean, I think there's another, um, there's two two roads really that or two specialties that you really need to have. And one one is networking, no question. You need to know the people, but you also do need to, uh, you have to have a script that's gonna impress somebody. And whether it's a showrunner, whether it's a manager, agent, executive, whoever, you have to have that thing that they say, hey, this person can write, even if, you know, hopefully really well. And if not really well, then somewhat competently. So you do, you, you, you need to have something that people can say, oh, this, you know, this is my calling card. This is what I can do. And, uh, or, or, you know, or, okay. Like if you do the fellowships, you have to have amazing, uh, pilots and potentially an amazing spec. Uh, if you, you know, if you need it, want an agent or a manager, you have to have something that they feel like they can sell or they can get it out in front of people and get people excited about. And so those are kind of, um, you know, the, the, the two avenues are networking and, and quality of your product. So, you know, there's a Wall Street Journal, Journal article from a few years ago. It talked about how, I think it was how George Lucas had met Spielberg. And I believe the story went that, you know, Lucas had done American Graffiti and American Graffiti was the thing that convinced Spielberg to work with Lucas moving forward, I believe, on Raiders. I could have that story totally wrong, but that's what I think the story was. But the point of the story was that it's great to network, but if Lucas didn't have that amazing film, American Graffiti, then he wouldn't. it wouldn't have mattered that he knew Spielberg. So... I mean, that's hopefully that anecdote helps people and that I didn't completely butcher it. Always be prepared. Yeah. Be pre- it's, you know, opportunity is when preparation meets. Yes. Yeah. Luck, luck meets opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. They know. <laughs> yeah. And that, and I also suggest, you know, um, and I think to one of your points from earlier, Zimran is, um, you know, how, the how of it, it's like, how do you get in the room? Another part, uh, unfortunately, what's happening now in the marketplace is what's happening with, you know, the Netflixes of it all. You know, they want all the scripts done first before they start production. And what that means is a lot of te- people in television and usually TV writers are also producers. TV writers aren't being allowed to produce their own episodes. And that means you're taking a cut and pay because you're not being paid to produce. Um, that means you're not getting producer fees. You're not getting all kinds of stuff beyond what the showrunner, who is also taking a, a pay cut, uh, to also perform these duties when their staff is gone. So uh, for people who are coming up and they are trying to get into the writer's room or trying to sell something, produce. Just do some indie stuff. Shoot some scenes yourself. Produce them. And then you have a reel. And, and a lot of people, and I'm sure you know this too, Zimron, a lot of people don't need, uh, like to read, which is crazy. Um, so it's like, well, if you don't want to read, you know, my 60 page script, television script, how about watching a scene from this wonderful work of art? And, you know, let's, let's talk about that. And I think that learning how to produce and understanding production will go a long way also when you're writing. Yeah. Uh, because when you're working in a television room and there's some sort of budgetary concern, you know, you've got to cut some scenes out because some set piece was too expensive. And they didn't get the location agreement to shoot there. So now you've got to rework that scene and figure out how to make it cheaper or lose an actor or five 
you know, for the episode because you're, you're over pattern, you're over budget and you've got to figure it out. So there's that too, just understanding the mechanics and the financing and the producing. And I think that that's, that is something you can also market when you're trying to sell yourself to get into somebody's room. I know how to do X. I know yeah. how to do Y. I knew how to do A, B, and C. And, you know, people perk up because that means that's something that they don't have to do because you're that person on the bench who can do it for them. Yeah, I've seen people in the writer's room get promoted because they had already done a feature. It's like, oh, you did a feature. And then it's like, okay, now you're a producer level writer or something. And, you know, even even with the project that I'm currently working on, you know, the producer comes to me and says, hey, is this going to be budget? Is this going to be budget? And I have like... uh, I have a pretty good understanding of how I can make it budget or how we can change the scene so that it works for the budget. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing it, at, at the end of the day, you have to, everybody has to remember who's writing is that this is a business and your space opera is <laughs> it's like costs like a $300 million. That's your avatar is going to be a harder sell than like, you know, a bottle horror movie about a crocodile. Right. So, uh, ultimately like it's still a business and you're still trying to turn a profit and there's you know 50 cent actually in his most recent book talks about this thing you were just talking about sylvia is have something produced it's like who can produce something on a budget because those are the people that work over and over and over again it's like okay like this movie was terrible but like they made made it for such a small amount of money and it did all this did all this business and so therefore this person is going to direct another movie and then that's that's really the bottom line Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you see people get ragged on filmmakers get ragged on all the time. And it's like, well, they're just, they're making money. <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, that's really the bottom line for a lot of these corporations, which are giant businesses. So yeah, write something cheap, write something engaging, cheap, few, a few locations set in the present day. And I mean, yeah, that, that, and produce it then, uh, at, you know, at least you have something and you can maybe improve it the next time. Like the next time you do a production, you know, Quentin Tarantino, said that his film school was producing a feature before he did Reservoir Dogs. And so, I mean, and he's one of the most iconic directors of our, of our generation. Or like, you know, Martin Scorsese was doing a lot of student films uh, at NYU before he started to do his feature films and had his own iconic career. Yeah, cash is king. I, I feel like that gets confused amongst writers who have not yet been produced. Because they are, we all, you know, have an eye and we have taste and we're looking at quality and um, you might be like, oh, this was so high quality. But if it didn't do well at the box office, it is not going to be looked on. And the people who are part of that are not going to be well regarded by studios who are like, okay, are they a good investment for future work? Yeah, this kind of idea of marketability is kind of, it's so... uh nebulous right it's like nobody knows what's going to succeed we kind of have a feeling of what we like when we read a script or when we see you know a short like we we're like oh we like this like so will everybody like this it's like maybe but i mean yeah like there's that story in uh the book um how to make money or i I forget It, it was written by the guys that did uh that were in um reno 911 but they talk about how taxi was this hugely uh well received movie the queen latifah i think it was jimmy fallon movie jimmy fallon anyway that's right yeah that movie didn't make any money though yeah it didn't make any money but they were talking it was so heavily uh 
like regarded when it first came in. And it was like, oh, this is going to be. They were talking about a sequel, and yeah, that, of course, it didn't. It didn't make any money, uh, and that was that was the end of any any hopes of uh, of a sequel or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it really is important to kind of write on a budget uh, and something that can return a lot of money. That's why a lot of thrillers and horror movies and right. uh, grounded sci-fi are are the are are selling and like or, or people will pay for them. Like if you have a horror movie at AFM somebody's going to be interested somewhere like you know in any random horror movie so uh because they're cheap and they sell and there's always a market for them and you know couples want to go to the movie and be scared or whatever it is you know or stay at home and be scared now uh but um yeah i anyway i i think that answers that You skipped over the whole dating coach. Oh yeah, sure. Stuff. I'm really curious about that just because I'm friends with Neil Strauss and I know yeah. a lot about like that world. And I'm wondering how, I mean, has that also informed any of what you do with your, for example, art of persuasion with pitching or anything? That's interesting. I I've met people from Neil Strauss's company um, and his, yeah, there's, there's a lot of crossover between the history of the company that I worked for and the history of Neil, well, Neil Strauss's history. Um, but the, um, yeah, so that kind of happened. I, I, I was, I was very inexperienced when I moved out to LA. So I, I realized every movie has the B story, which is the love story. And I was like, I don't know anything about this, so I need to learn about it. So that's why what got me interested in the first place, uh, in that kind of subject matter. But yeah, you know, I, uh, worked at that company and then got worked my way up into being a dating coach. Um, and I, yeah, like I've said, I've met people from Neil Strauss's company, uh, out and about, um, and, you know, was friendly with them, uh, back in the day. Uh, you know, I think that the things it, it, it's taught, like, I feel like that science is taught very differently. It's a social science, but taught very differently than it was back then, right? Like yeah, back in the, his day, it was like, oh, you know, throw on a furry hat and like uh, some eyeliner or whatever it is, right? Like those kinds of things I never did or like a feather boa, like those kinds of ostentatious things I never did. Um, but I, I think that when I think about, there were things that I learned about like making sure, uh, there were things that I learned about not being too like, um, direct or like desperate that have applied to like networking for example don't, don't telegraph desperation <laughs> yeah i mean that, that's, that's, that's a big i mean i mean look that's it. a really key point yeah. it's a really key point if you're telegraphing desperation to somebody who you want to have you want to work with or have yeah. buy your stuff they're automatically going to be way less interested and probably not work with you yeah i mean you know i'll give you an example my friend roman vieras who was uh the cfo at, at uh at gomont um, when I met him on the basketball court, I didn't really know who he was. I, I was just trash talking him. Like I trash talk everybody on the basketball court. Um, but he liked love that. that. Because, That's yeah, a honeypot for someone like that with power. <laughs> yeah. Because, because think about it everywhere they go, they get their butt kissed and they're sick of it. <laughs> they're like, here's a guy who's like real and like funny and like, you will say like a bit edgy, you know, and will treat me like a friend and not like, you know, as a, a subservient. Right. So, uh, things like that, like, I think made an impression on him or like, um, 
you know, this concept of like giving value, that's more of like, they, they actually teach you how to like make friends as like in the, in the dating coach company. Like there was a guy who's just specialized in like how to like build circles of friends. And that for me was the, one of the biggest, that's where I kind of took so much of my uh, knowledge of like networking is like, you know, give value before you take value. Like when I told the guy, thank you in the parking lot, it's like, Hey, let me just give this to you and like tell you, thank you because I do, I mean it. And like, you're this successful producer and you're just coming in on the, like a Saturday or a Sunday of all days to tell me what you think about my friend's script. And that's going to be so valuable to me moving forward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think like things like that were the most, like, ta- I don't think there's that many tactics that I'm like, oh, I'm going to tell this person that he has crooked teeth and then that's going to get me a job or whatever. <laughs> like I would never, <laughs> I, I, but like, as far as like being a socially aware person, uh, those kinds of things have opened many more doors for me than, um, than any like tactic would have. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, 50% of the job is being socially competent yeah. and yeah. making friends. You're um, talking around one of the principles that I took from knowing Neil, which is called frame. And yeah. I'm always teaching the above the line creatives about frame, because when you're coming from a place of generosity and giving and confidence and, and you're communicating clearly, articulately, people automatically feel set at ease around you. They're more relaxed. They're more likely to like you and want to work with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, yeah, frame is kind of the underlying, um, uh, meaning of any any given interaction right so yeah i mean you know it's funny because sometimes on twitter like people like insult me and i'm like okay well then i just don't want to have anything to do with you like <laughs> and it's, I, it's people think that that's getting on my radar or something but yeah like it, it, it you know it, when you reach out to people if you're like complimentary or like if you're just if you're just saying to an executive producer hey i loved your show I loved X, Y, and Z about your show. And it really resonated in this sense. Maybe you're not standing out, but at least you're giving good emotions, which is so important. And like, you know, there was somebody's, you know, said like good emotions really trump everything. Like if you, if you can give somebody good emotions, if you can make them feel good, then, um, you know, every, everything else can, can kind of fall into place more or less. Like all those other things that we worry about, like, you know, guys flashing like Rolex watches or whatever it might, you know, trying to pull up in their fancy car. It's like all that other stuff is kind of like secondary, I think, to good emotions, in my, right. in my opinion. I, think, yeah, I, mean, that's I also think if you can find something in someone's work past, their work history, something that you've enjoyed as a consumer, and you can speak to that in some way. And I've done this on Twitter before. You, you know, someone that you follow says something really that resonates with you, and you just comment, and they respond. You know, you, you had no idea knowing that they would do it. You just, you just, you're just like, great, great idea. I love that. And that really touched me because, and then they say, thank you. Or they send a heart or something. And then you just, you just, that's a conversation starter. Just start the conversation. Honestly, it's like, it's really like a a cocktail party. If you want to think of it that way, Mm -hmm. Um, you just approach somebody you may not know personally and just say, you know, I was thinking about something. I just overheard you guys talking about it. Sorry. I wasn't meaning to, you know, overstep, but, and then they, they pull you in to the conversation or you ask a question and you just go from there. But I think, I think kindness and to Kaya's point, generosity is, is a great way to meet people and yeah. to, 
Uh, uh, so I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I like there's I have a million things now that I am thinking about it. But like, yeah, like, um, I mean, you you definitely want to like stand out in a certain way. Like a lot of people, it, the because is a very important part because, so you know, how many times does somebody reach out to me and be like, oh, I love The Punisher or one of my favorite shows or whatever. But it's like, what about The Punisher? Did you like? Because I have a very different interpretation of that show than you, you know, a random person who loves The Punisher. I mean, The Punisher is like universally loved by by a lot of people, but you know, the the show, the what's it called, the creator Jerry Conway came out recently and said, you know, this is not a right wing symbol. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's like the Punisher is not like he's not like uh, you know Jerry Conway came out like in favor of Black Lives Matter, for example. And like that is against a lot of what a lot of people who are fans of the Punisher would want. Right. So ultimately it all is all to say like what, you know, if you can have something genuine, that's not too like desperate or needy or, and yeah. And also social awareness, right? Like when you're working for an executive producer, you have to kind of read their mind in a lot of ways, like, or try to, but anticipate what they want and what they need and like anticipate. It's like, okay, this is what's happening now. I'm going to see several steps ahead and you're going to need this later. Okay. You're going to ask me for the schedule at the end of the day. And those are things that you have to kind of get. Oh, the chess player in you is coming out, Zimran. Yeah. 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 And I I mean, I I guess that, and that's just a relationship, right? Like, I don't know. There was this. It's uh, the same in the writer's room. You have to read the room. You have to gauge what the, you know, the, the, the hierarchy and how people talk to each other. And, yeah. you know, you have to be able to read and understand if I open my mouth right now <laughs> to pitch, is it going to be well received? Is it going to help? Or is it, you know, is it an icebreaker? How can I help in this room? And, and the room is all about relationships. It's like, if you give somebody bad emotions in the room, you're not coming back next season, you know, like, <laughs> so, so, and, and yeah, like it's all about relationships. I mean, there was this, um, uh, basketball player. It's funny. Mar- Martin Gortat, uh, he said that, um, he would have like a gift hidden in his house. And for any time he had a fight with his girlfriend and he's like, Oh, like I got a gift for you or whatever. And it's like, that's like the anticipation, the social awareness. And he's like, I'm just going to like, make it make it as simple as possible for me but yeah like when you're working with a producer you do have to kind of anticipate their uh their desires and their wants and yeah and their their needs and like what are they if if you can do that for them and they don't have to like say anything and you make their lives easier then they give you more work and then hopefully they promote you and uh but you at least at the very least you have a good relationship with them so no matter what happens with the show you know that person and then that person knows other people the showrunners all know each other uh, yeah, in the writer's room, you have to have a ton of social awareness. You have to, you know, how are you, um, you know, you, you have to be able to uh, to keep the thing that this person is saying in mind as you're coming up with your idea. You have to know what the showrunner wants. You have to kind of know what their tastes are. And um, I mean, yeah, a little bit of chess, a little bit of, you know, relationship management. Um, but yeah, so social awareness, I think, is uh, is really what I, what I tried to focus on. And problem solving. And problem solving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, like production is all about problem solving. Mm -hmm. Like I worked in production for three years and it really is, yeah, it's all problem solving. It's, we have this, uh, we have this problem. We we have this amount of time. We have all these things to shoot. How do we do that? Okay. We're going to, 
do it by location, do it by cast, do it by this, do it by that. Right. Like we, um, it, it's all about, I mean, there's so many things that happen in a production. It's like, okay, you have to get the star schedule together and make sure that they don't have any conflicts or you have to shoot around their conflicts. Right. Or, um, you know, we have this location for all this time. So we have to get this person here at these times and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that, that's, that I think comes all from experience mostly. Cameron, you're, you love education and I imagine that you're also a big reader. So maybe you'd like to share with our audience, a couple of books that you've relied on or that changed the way you think, and that would help them also as they navigate their careers. Um, screenwriting or, or otherwise? I really mean like anything yeah, um, yeah. that's helped you within the world that you occupy as a writer and now producer. Yeah. Uh, the 50th Law by 50 Cent. I'm, I'm a huge 50 Cent fan. That's fantastic. So, uh, uh, 50th Law by 50 Cent. It's uh, written by Robert Greene. I'm uh, also a huge Robert Greene fan. Uh, but it basically just talks about, you know, Robert Greene's first book, 48 Laws of Power, was about how history influences like tactics, you know, tactics of power, right? And so how these historical figures use these tactics of power to, um, to, to shape their, their, their lives or shape, shape history pretty much. And, um, you know, 50th law was important because it was about conquering fear and like there, people are so afraid of fear or people are so consumed by fear on a regular basis. Um, but anyway, that, that's a great one, uh, co-written by 50 cent and Robert Greene, the historian, um, mastery by Robert Greene is also a good one. Um, there's bounce outliers, talent code, um, talent is overrated, which are mostly all about just how you can get better at something over time, how you can put yourself in a position to succeed, how like chess players, the Judith Polgar, or, like Roger Federer are successful because they go, you know, they were taught at a young age. They went to the right chess schools or the right tennis schools, the right academies uh, things like that. But it, it, it all kind of went to show like, I wasn't a great English student at all. But I, I just love films so much. And I love the literature of films that I just kept pushing and, you know, and pushing until some, you know, some things happen for me. So those kinds of books are about develop, self development and getting, you know, get, um, yeah, getting better at things over time. Like when I was 21, my dad sent me outliers. And I didn't want to hear that. I didn't, I, was, I, I didn't want to hear, oh, it's going to take me 10 years to get good at this. I'm like, no, I'm already a good writer, Pop. Like, it's fine. Um, but yeah, here I am 10 years later. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm much better now than I was when I was 21. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's important to know, like a lot of writers don't break in until, um, I mean, a lot of writers break in in their 30s. So if you're, you know, a young writer in your 20s, it's just you're competing with people that have so much more experience than you. So you have to be amazing out of the jump or know the right people out of the jump uh, or just compete, keep competing. Uh, other books that really helped me, um, Phil Jackson's book about uh, Kobe Bryant was huge. I know we've talked about it, uh, Kaya. Amazing. Uh, but like, you know, that was, um, I mean, yeah, there's, it, 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 it was about, I, I hated the Lakers growing up and I was, uh, you know, I did, I did not like the Lakers. I'm from, I'm from the Bay area. So <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're rivals. And 
I, I want, I read that book and I was, I mean, I, I always loved Kobe Bryant because every time I would play basketball and I would shoot like my, you know, I was the best player in my elementary school and they would always yell Kobe when I shot. And I'm like, we're, why it, we're in Bay area. Like I knew that there was a rivalry. I'm like, just shout out like Anton Jameson or something. I don't know, something different, but, um, that book made me just love those Lakers and like have such a romance for those Lakers um, and completely cool. changed my, my, my view on, um, on that team. It was called uh, 11 rings by uh, Phil Jackson. 11 rings. Um, Ron, uh, Curtis Jackson, 50 cent um, hustle harder, hustle smarter was that book that I was mentioning where um, uh, 50 cent was talking about getting something produced. And he says, when you get something produced, then you're taking, more seriously than a lot of other people. Um, 1984 is a classic, I think very misinterpreted by a lot of people in the political climate. But if you read it, you, it, it is, it is still very, a very important uh, book to know and animal farm for that matter as well is also amazing. Yeah. We're um, classics. Yeah. Uh, Ibram Kendi's how to be an anti-racist. Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Would just kind of gives you a, at least lets you kind of, um, address certain biases we have in society. Uh, Cast, Isabel Wilkerson, which who I, I think she's a historian, but it kind of compares the history of America, India, and Nazi Germany, and the caste systems in all those three places, which to me, I, I'm, I am so far removed from my Indian culture that uh, it's always interesting for me to learn about things like that, but to learn about the kind of comparisons between those th- three um, worlds was, I mean, really eye-opening. Um, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. I mean, it's it, just kind of an anthropological story and very eye-opening. I know it's, it's kind of cliche at this point. Uh, and the Ramayana, Ramayana was, um, big for me because I was kind of like, uh, again, torn away from my Indian culture um, been a few really great translations. I know I read one like maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago that just like was mind blowing page turner. So good. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, the Odyssey is another amazing one. And the Robert Fagel's Odyssey is, it's just so clear. You know, I used to read it in my, um, in my, my old textbooks and it, it didn't make any sense, but Robert Fagel's I think did a really good job of translating both the Odyssey and the Iliad. But the the Ramayana that I have is by Linda Eugenes and read by Kumada Reddy. Oh my gosh. Um, you see how not Indian I am. I'll have to cross compare. I've got, a, I've got at least one on my shelf that I really love. Um, Shashi Tarur's Inglorious Empire is amazing. Um, it's about like the history of British imperialism in India. Uh, People's History of America, is amazing by Howard Zinn powerhouse, the CAA book, uh, kind of talks about, that's a must read for anybody in Hollywood because it's about the history 
of the biggest agency in the in the town. And so, you know, it's obviously going to be favorable to CAA, but it is going to be like in, extremely informative. Um, really important. It's really hard to learn anything about the agencies because it's so opaque. It's such a closed door. So that's a really good one for folks who don't really know how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Like that, that one is very kind of eye opening as far as like, yeah, it, 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 it's, I remember somebody at CAA said, this is like my film school. Like reading this book is like my film school and anything that you can read about the history of Hollywood, because it's just such a fascinating, rich 100 year history that, you know, you think it just people think it just start movie history just started with Lord of the Rings. Like, you know, like there are some people that don't know anything before Lord of the Rings. So um, Mike Mattaboy's book, You're Only As Good As Your Next One, is one of my favorites. No, yeah. Is that who is that by? Mike Mattaboy. Oh, Mike Metavoy. Okay. I definitely need to check it out. Uh, and then I know like I went on a huge rant about books, but, um, I mean, uh, the new Jim Crow was a big one for me recently. Um, because there's so much in the, in the zeitgeist about, there's so many cop shows, for example, so many like criminal justice shows, and it's good to get that perspective of what the whole system looks like instead of this every single episode we're solving a crime look at at like at, at the way that a lot of you know you would think that every crime gets solved with csi but i think it's like four percent of crimes get solved which is not four percent of major crimes get solved that's so yeah like this whole thing about like oh who's gonna solve it it's like uh, nobody really <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody nobody's gonna solve it. but it, at least new jim crow talks about the history of kind of the racialized uh, justice system, which I, I thought was very eye-opening. Um, and then for writing books, like I would say Story by Robert McKee uh, is probably like a foundational one. Uh, I have one called uh, The the Sequence Method by Paul Galino. Um, basically breaks a feature into eight 15-minute sequences. And he's like, here's how you do your 15, 15 minutes. Each 15 minutes is this. And... Um, that, that can also be helpful if you're overwhelmed by writing a feature. That's so cool. Thank you so much for that fantastic yeah. deep yeah. dive into your library. That, that's so my whole excited. library. <laughs> I just <laughs> want to add one quick one. I read scripts, the uh, film scripts too. There, I think there's like six, six series, book series about old film scripts. And this one is oh. High Noon, 12 Angry Men, and The Defiant Ones. Um, just checking out how... Uh, scripts have evolved over time, mm -hmm. and uh, the emphasis was more on story back then, um, as opposed to visual effects or special effects as we now see today. Uh, but yeah, anything that has uh, scripts in it, whether it's television or features, you know, read, see what they're doing, see how things have changed. Yeah, absolutely. See, see what worked in the past, and see what resonates with you, and see, yeah, see how scripts are written. Really, like, I mean, everybody has their own opinion on. A script that's written in the writer's room is completely different from a script that goes out to market, right? Like, so those are things that you have to be aware of and everybody has their own opinion on how to write a script and just be exposed to as many as you can so that you can say, well, they did it here and it succeeded here. So I have this thing to kind of hold on to.
Yeah, and Sylvia's point is important. It's it's really important to be reading produced work and reading the classics, go all the way through what's modern and current. So that is there there's a difference between reading the work of writers who've never been produced to reading the work of writers who have been produced. There's just a different sensibility because you know, having watched your work informs you know, what you're creating. And I, I'm a novelist, so it's a very different sensibility. You know, learning screenwriting after 10 years down the novelist path is, is just so different. So really knowing your your craft, what you need to master, what you need to learn. And then also to your point about being intelligently social, knowing the business side, knowing the finance side, knowing how to make friends, you know, all of these elements come into play. Like Sylvia said, it's a team, it's a team sport. Oh, and I, I had another, I had a, a million things to say about how dating coaching helps uh, being a writer. But, <laughs> That's uh, a whole other, it's a whole other episode, isn't it? <laughs> taking rejection is like... <laughs> mm, right, yeah. right. Like I, I, um, I remember I was working with uh, a boss who I really loved, Damien, um, and I, I turned in something that I had, I had no experience with before. And he looked it over and he just said, hey, I think you need to partner up with this more experienced writer. And I just said, okay. And <laughs> the, the, like the fact that I didn't take that rejection so like seriously, like he was like, oh wow, like you have no ego about this. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I, I'm just trying to get, trying to make your life easier and like trying to get the work done. That's really my most, um, the, the, the most important thing. Like I'm not gonna get caught in my feelings cause you didn't like a thing that I wrote or that. That stops people. I mean, that that's huge. Yeah. It totally stops people. You know, you wonder why you don't get invited back for a second season or why people aren't returning your calls. And it can sometimes just be, you're really prickly about receiving any feedback and that's a career stopper, you know? It, I, for me, I mean, it held up my career because I would get notes and I was like, eh, fuck this. Like, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna take these notes. Like, um, but like the, the, yeah, ultimately like it was, um, yeah, it only stops you. Like if somebody's giving you feedback on your thing and it's somebody else's opinion, it's worth something. And so, yeah, and you know, my old agent used to say like, the writers who work take notes. I mean, yeah, she was the head of Gersh Lit for 10 years and the head of Innovative Lit for 10 years. So anything that she says to me is gospel and I don't, I don't think twice about it. I'm like, okay, cool. Writers who work take notes. Done and done, like never gonna think about it again. <laughs> But all, that, that doesn't mean if somebody gives you a note that totally doesn't work, that you just disregard it or that you, that, that you, that you just do it. Like if something totally doesn't work, then definitely fight for what you believe in, but just don't reject every single note that comes your way. We want to thank you for being an amazing guest with us today, Zimran. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at This Is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A, and Sylvia at R Writer, that's R W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook. How to Pitch Anything in One Minute at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com Thank you.